Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Bitcoin for Everybody show. I'm Cameron here with uh, my co-host Anthony, and we are here with Luke Broyles. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. To be honest, I'm quite tired. I was at a, a Bitcoin conference for a few days in El Salvador, and I got back yesterday from beautiful uh, El Salvadoran weather to now cold Michigan weather. So I'm quite tired from the trip and weather's a little dreary, but that's all right. Plenty of reasons to still be happy. And yeah, I'm looking forward to this. So awesome. great. We definitely have to talk about El Salvador. I'm very interested in hearing about that. But to get started, maybe you can just talk a little bit about what you do in your day-to-day life. Like what is your profession, I guess? Well, I most of my background was in the filmmaking world. I made lots of movies and films, uh, short films, feature films, documentaries, narratives, really into the storytelling world. And I really enjoyed that. You know, I, I did lots of film festivals, won a decent number of awards, at least for my age. And it, it was a blast. I met lots of people I wouldn't have gotten to meet otherwise. Lots of life experiences that, looking back, feel like a world away. But it was... It was a fun thing. I really enjoyed it. I was obsessive about it. And, you know, I I loved it. Also, real estate, of course, that's much more along the investment side. Real estate, I got into a few years ago to varying success. A lot of lessons learned the hard way. You know, some successes. Ultimately, I like more real estate. I've got Lots of other things on my plate right now, though, which is making it difficult. And then, of course, on top of that, you have the way the world is right now with interest rates and everything else making it more difficult. But anyway, that's kind of irrelevant. So I, I got into the uh, real estate world. I Before that, I was doing stocks. My, my grandfather worked for many, many years as a Walmart greeter in his retirement years to save up money for me, right? And, you know, he left me little bit of money when he passed on, unfortunately. And so I was like, what do I do with this money? How do I budget it? How do I save it? You know, and and with the films I'd done beforehand, uh, the filmmaking stuff I'd done, I had managed budgets before I'd gotten sponsors before, you know, going on different film festival trips, even as a teenager, like your money involved. So I had more exposure to money as a teenager. I think most people did, or at least, you know, trying to balance it, which is not to say I always do that perfectly. But I think when I inherited that money, I was like, okay, how do I preserve this? How do I save this? You know, he worked hard for this and he wanted me to, you know, have a bright future, right? And so mutual funds and stocks was where I had that. And I did all right. 20, uh, let's see, that would have been 2017, 2018, 2019, uh, up to 2020, uh, you know, is that before the market granted by, you know, like, a couple percent, you know, so really that's perhaps partially attributed to my intellect, but also equally attributed to good timing, right? Uh, the Zerp era. So, <laughs> so anyway, I had exposure in that. And then 2020, the world obviously changed in March. I asked myself a lot of questions that I, had, I hadn't asked myself before. You know, with with the filmmaking, storytelling background, I'd always loved history. You know, history is basically a giant story. Lots of causes and effects. Why this? Why that? Why did this happen? Who did this? Right? And and so with my interest in history and my 
obsessive curiosity to try to understand what was happening. Cause you know, I, I could tell with the whole pandemic and lockdowns and chaos and financial markets and everything, it's just like something doesn't feel right. And I know that to a certain degree, things will never feel right because the world is imperfect and broken, but something uniquely didn't feel right particularly. And it felt like it was getting worse. I was trying to figure out what that was. And so I, I came to the conclusion in 2020, I don't remember when precisely in 2020, that whole year is basically a blur as I think it is for a lot of us, but I realized, oh, okay, I understand now what my fundamental thesis with stocks is, what my fundamental thesis with real estate is. It finally hit me after all that time. And so I, I can get more what that is in a little bit, but I, I really doubled down on that. Double down, double down, thought more, thought more, and eventually came to the beginning of the rabbit hole that we call Bitcoin, which we'll touch more on later uh, in the conversation. But that's when that rabbit hole started for me, seriously, was late 2019 and then particularly early 2021 after the crazy 2020 year. And then just from there, here I am a few years later, going at 100 miles an hour, lots of long days, but loving it having a blast getting to meet lots of people i don't i well i know i would have never been able to meet otherwise so that's that's a little bit of how i got here i suppose you ever think about making a bitcoin film oh yeah yeah it's on geyser if you want to donate to it the case for bitcoin we raised i think 40 million sats something like that so 0.4 btc um you know robert breedlove's helping me produce it you know just have, having his name attached to it hopefully to be done early next year and then there'll be a series of showings and premieres i'm super excited for that i'll be announcing later on that will be great but yeah so i'm working on that and then of course i do lots of youtube content as well just videos lectures presentations rants all of it yeah i'm looking forward to that uh series that documentary coming out okay so that's a little bit about you, before you discovered Bitcoin. So Luke, I guess now let's talk about when you first started looking into Bitcoin, what was it that really got you hooked? What, like, at what point did you start realizing there's more to this than, than I hear on social media? Yeah. Well, I, I think before saying what got me hooked, I think I should probably start a little before that. Right. You know, it, it's, it's easier for people like me that are, over advocates for Bitcoin or people like you with the Bitcoin hat on to be out here and seen by others as the, you know, people bashing people on the head with, with Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. But really for years, I thought Bitcoin was a scam or speculation. And I thought I'm not smart enough to figure out which it is. So I'm just going to avoid it altogether. You know, this was like I mentioned before, uh, 2016, 2017, 2018, and most of 2019, I just have bitcoin is that right you know it's like i want it, i want my money to be safe i want it to be stable you know i want good growth stock mutual funds i want good stocks you know the vix blah 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 you know i don't really want to speculate in gold i don't really want to speculate in bitcoin because maybe that's a ponzi maybe it's a scam and not a ponzi maybe it's neither of those but it's a speculation and i don't want to speculate with my money because you know even at even as a late teenager i had a long time preference. And I'm like, even though I'm young, I don't want to speculate in stuff I don't understand. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to speculate in 
baseball cards and bitcoins and gold and futures markets. You know, I'm just not going to do that, right? So, so I, I think that's worthy mentioning for those listening is that for a long time I just ignored it and didn't think much of it, and you know that's okay. My worldview changed, and I look back and sometimes I wonder why I thought the things I did. And I'm sure if I was there looking forward to me now, it would have been just as perplexing. And so along that transition over the course of the five years or so, there were a lot of individual aha moments, individual steps like that. The first significant one was probably late 2019, was late 2019. I forget when precisely, but I, I made an acquaintance with someone who eventually became a friend of mine uh, for a time, and he uh, had a very heavy Bitcoin allocation, and I realized, hmm, this person, I think, is pretty intelligent, and he's pretty optimistic on this Bitcoin thing. I thought, okay, you know, I don't know if it's a Ponzi, I don't know if it's a scam, I don't know what it is, but if he's optimistic on it, and not neutral slash negative like I was, you know, maybe there's something to it. Like, okay, maybe. So I watched a few Bitcoin documentaries then, you know, maybe a couple dozen hours of, you know, videos, articles, news segments, whatever. And then, like I said, 2020 happened, particularly March 2020, the world changed. I got distracted for a time, as many of us did, with the virus and the lockdowns and the riots and the protests and the politics and all the craziness and all the changes of that year. But like I said, by mid-2020, I realized, hmm, bonds look a little suspicious here. We're ticking a lot of boxes that we probably shouldn't be ticking, and people seem to be oblivious of it. Everyone is pro-stimmy check. Everyone is pro-PPP loans. Everyone is saying we're not going to have inflation. We're going to have deflation. Hmm. You know, if the Nobel Prize economists and the politicians are saying something that I think is so overtly wrong, like maybe I should look into this more. So that was probably the second big aha moment was realizing that, oh, the money policymakers either are completely unaware of what they're doing or they're actively misleading people. And I don't know which it is. And it's probably a mix of both, but I realized that. And so that was probably a critical moment. Probably the single most defining moment that really got me passionate about it was early 2021. I really dove into some of Alex Gladstein's work and interviews and i really thought about it hard again in that historical context historical lens i mentioned earlier and it became abundantly clear to me that oh yeah okay the need for apolitical money is really important and political money 100 of the time will descend into political madness and chaos and so i realized okay maybe maybe i shouldn't just pay attention to bitcoin because that friend of mine was optimistic on it maybe i shouldn't just look into bitcoin because i think it could be a hedge against let's say deteriorating dollars right deteriorating political currency but i realized oh this could have a positive impact on other people very efficiently very widely and very deeply for a very long period of time and so early 2021 is really when intellectually and time-wise i went hard it took me about a year of really going deep to figure out differences between proof of work proof of stake 
you know, all the basics, Bitcoin cryptography and, you know, the, the theories that Bitcoiners love to tap in regards to Bitcoin, you know, I, I considered all, or to me, what seemed to be all the possible avenues. And then finally, by early, mid 2022, I realized, oh, okay, Bitcoin, Bitcoin only. And the, the this is where the innovation is. And so I started doing presentations on it in mid 2022. I did in-person presentations and lectures. I did videos on YouTube, got very little attention. I had 13 subscribers on YouTube. So, you know, of course, like three real people and 10 bots, right? And I think I had 80 followers on Twitter, so nothing. And the January 17th of this year, 2023, I posted some of my thoughts on Twitter and it blew up basically immediately. The first thread went, to me, what I'd consider viral, you know, it's not viral in typical internet standards, but in little finance, Bitcoin bubble land, it went, it did very well. And pretty much immediately from there, it's just been a nonstop ride. And frankly, I feel like I'm just trying to keep up. Like, I don't even feel like I'm in control. I feel like it's just sucking me along and I'm just iterating as fast as I can to, to keep up with the momentum that I've been so fortunate to ride on. And People have said it's been useful to them in ways far more profound than I could have ever expected. And just the opportunities that have been brought to me, I am extremely grateful for. And I'm doing my best to maximize on as many of them as I can. And that's how I ended up here. So there, there are multiple other things along the way, but that's the long story short of my Bitcoin journey specifically getting here. That's awesome. It's it's always interesting to hear how, you know, different people and their aha moments and kind of what led them to Bitcoin. I know I contribute most of how I've got there to this man right here, Cameron. So yeah, 2020, I agree with you. It was a blur. And looking back on it, it hindsight's always 2020, no pun intended, but yeah, I wish I would have been doing some more due diligence, but yeah, I, I don't even know how you do it, Luke. It sounds like you've been you've been just 24-7 since January. Kudos to you and the effort you've been putting into this to get this knowledge out there. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Thankfully, not 24-7, but I, I pretty much uh, wake up, work, work all day, go to bed, get up, do it again. And it's very tiring, but I really enjoy it. Um, partially because I think the opportunity for me personally is very good financially wise. Secondly, because I think it has a real impact on the rest of the world. You know, like I said before, I do think this has great potential to impact a lot of lives, probably many more lives than people are anticipating. Even most Bitcoiners, I think, are too bearish on the number of lives this can impact. Um, and then third, because it's just a personal mission of mine, you know, to go out there, proclaim the truth and do my best to help others to the best of my ability and this thing really fulfills all three of those things simultaneously and so it's it's like a train that just keeps moving and accelerating and going faster and faster and faster and so yeah i'm just along for the ride here all right Luke. so like we spoke about earlier as the name suggests this podcast is called bitcoin for everybody so we really want this to be a podcast that anybody can tune into 
even if you don't know anything about Bitcoin and be able to learn a little bit about it. And hopefully at least, you know, like you said, it took you a year or two before it really clicked why Bitcoin was so essential and why Bitcoin only. Mm -hmm. But in this episode, we would like to at least, if nobody is, knows anything about Bitcoin, if they listen to this podcast, we at least hope that they are intrigued about it and are at least what will have somewhat of an idea about what it is after. And hopefully, you know, that starts them down the rabbit hole. So piggybacking off of that, if somebody is listening to this that doesn't really know much about Bitcoin at all, has only heard about it on TV, where would you start with describing what Bitcoin is to them? Because honestly, a lot of people still... I think really don't have any clue what it is. How to explain Bitcoin that, you know, it's, it's still hard to do, but I'll give it a shot. The The basic thing that is difficult for people to get their head around when it comes to Bitcoin is that it's just a bunch of numbers on a screen. It's just digital numbers, right? Kind of made up, you know, how does it have any utility? How does it have any value? Right. And, I think that's a great criticism, but I think fundamentally that's not a criticism of Bitcoin. It's a criticism of money itself, right? It's like, you know, the, the money in your bank account with your current money, your current political currency, like that's just numbers on a screen, right? And so I think we criticize Bitcoin for being numbers on a screen, but we forget that all money essentially is numbers on a screen or perhaps numbers on a piece of paper, right? In the analog world. And so we have to ask ourselves, why do we value any numbers at all over any other numbers, right? You know, why don't we just all print infinite monopoly dollars? And the reason I would argue is that money's utility, money's design is to be scarce in the face of everything else and help be a measure for us to communicate value with each other and the rest of the world, right? The only reason dollars have any value is because they are scarce in relation to everything else, right? Your dollars are more scarce than your house. And so therefore you price your house in terms of those dollars, right? Or dollars are more scarce than Argentinian pesos, they're more scarce uh, than euros, they're more scarce than Canadian dollars, they're more scarce than yen, yuan. You know, the, the dollar is the most scarce political system of numbers in the world. And so it has the most value of all these other systems of political numbers. And I think that's really profound because, you know, in ancient history, we used to exchange value with each other with a certain number of things, right? You'd exchange uh, a number of bushels of wheat for a number of something else that you desire, or, you know, perhaps a certain weight of food or this or that, you know, you exchange a number of textiles for something else, right? And so we have to communicate value in numbers, but then the invention of money is the realization that the most scarce thing itself is a number, right? You don't need to have a number of cups of salt in order to exchange value with someone else. You could just have the numbers themselves be that scarce because you can always just make more salt. You can always make more tin. You can always make more whatever in the ancient world. But the numbers themselves, if there's a way to verify that that number is that only specific number in the numerical system, well, then the number itself is the most scarce thing, right? You know, or in taking that ancient metaphor to today, it's the same thing. It's like you can go to the ledger of the U.S. Federal Reserve, the U.S. government, the banking system, and verify that the $1,000 in your bank account is 
that only thousand dollars in existence, right? It's not a one manifestation of an infinite number of thousand dollar units. It's like that money in your bank account. That's all there is. And we verify that that's the whole idea of a ledger. Ledger being this uh, double entry system of verifying, okay, when my numbers go from my pocket to your pocket, they're only transferring once, right? There's not this infinite duplication of those numbers, right? So, so we realized that, okay, money is really useful because it is more scarce at pricing everything else. And so it helps us price everything else. And this is essentially the whole real estate thesis, right? With what us real estate investors do is we go out there and we say, you know, there are all these houses out there and we want to buy them because we want to make money, right? We want to make money, meaning we want to make numbers. Like in what world do you go out and spend your energy on acquiring a place to live in exchange for more numbers, right? Like like the whole money itself is like a kind of collective delusion, right? It's, it's like a mass hallucination, right? It just doesn't make sense because it's not the numbers that matter. It's the stuff you can purchase with the numbers that matter, right? You know, I, I often talk about my other podcasts and online about how oxygen, I think is the best example of this. Oxygen is what we biologically have the greatest fear response to the absence of, right? You know, without water, you last a few days, without food, you last a few weeks, without sleep, you know, you might last a little longer, but without oxygen, you know, we're talking minutes, right? And so biologically, the rise of carbon dioxide in your blood system is what causes the great, greatest amount of suffering. And yet, when have you ever paid for your, you know, you don't have a monthly oxygen subscription plan, right? <laughs> it's It's free. So the relative abundance of oxygen in terms of the numbers is infinite. And so we never have to. So then you have to get back to that question of why do we exchange something that we value like food, like oxygen, like houses or that for these metaphorical numbers? It's only because they have relative scarcity. You don't pay for oxygen because oxygen is infinite, but you do use the numbers to pay for housing because housing is much more scarce in relation to oxygen, right? Or, you know, if you want to take the top baseball car in the world or the top whatever the top diamond the top car the most expensive thing that's the most expensive because it's the most rare right so my repeating point here is that it's all about scarcity it's all about the ability to duplicate and so a problem arises if you're trying to communicate value across society and you're trying to have numbers be scarce and prevent that duplication how do you do that you know, you can count to 100, you can count to 100, I can count to 100, everyone listening is can count to 100. And so how do we how do we verify that we're only together counting to 100 once? And that's by centralizing the authority of who decides this is the numerical system we use, right? So inherently, that technological system we call money, historically, has had to centralize. And that typically aka almost always centralizes to the hands of governments because governments are the most powerful institutions in the world, right? So again, let's take the example of America. The reason we all use American dollars and not Luke dollars or monopoly dollars is because America keeps the dollars more scarce in comparison to everything else. And because they have the biggest guns, because they have the most energy via kinetic force, aka weapons behind that, they are the ones that decree these are the numbers we'll use, right? And so the problem with that is that humans are 
flawed. We have flawed natures. We have corruption and we have distortions and we have selfish interests. And even if we had altruistic interests, we would do unaltruistic things and evil things and the belief that we are doing good for others. And so what we do is we distort those numbers a little bit, right? You know, if I'm the one that's making these numbers and saying, oh, we'll communicate to society what the prices, everything are. Well, why don't I just make a couple extra numbers and give them to you in exchange for a couple extra hours of your time or for a little bit more of your resources? That's that's what we do. You know, we saw this with the colonies. You know, we saw this with the French, with the British, obviously with the Americans today. But what these colonial empires did, in fact, one of the most effective ways at which they exerted control over their colonies in Africa and India, you know, Asia and the um, you know, Latin America, South America, is by forcing these nations, again, with the barrel of a gun, to use the currency that they decreed, right? If I'm in France and I am looking at Africa and saying, I want their resources, well, yeah, I could go in with a gun and there could be war, but that's costly and it's bad for, you know, me as the emperor or the king or whatever, you know, it's or today presidential election cycle, right? It, it's not very popular, right? And so the much easier thing to do if I want those resources disproportionately cheaper to me at their expense is I just make a little bit more numbers, give it to them in exchange for their natural resources. It takes zero energy for me to corrupt the system a little bit, to corrupt the numbers, create a lie in the, in that promise that these numbers are scarce, to create that lie, sell them the lie, and then get some of their resources in exchange. It's what we did in the colonial era, and it's what we do today. There are 14 African nations that are under the French uh, franc still. So the question arises, why is it that the French have the right to determine the currency of 14 individual African nations. Like that doesn't make much sense, does it? And then you have to ask, well, America does the same thing, right? You know, America, you know, I believe it's 11 or 11 or 12 uh, nations around the world have to use the dollar as legal tender. And then many, many, many more nations use the dollars, their petrodollar, they're forced to use it as petrodollar, not legal tender, but, you know, basically forced to trade oil for dollars and all that. And so you have to ask yourself, wait a second. Okay, we had the British pound as global reserve currency, global reserve numerical system before World War One. Then obviously World War One depression and World War Two seals the deal, tilts power in America's direction. Now America's got the biggest guns. We've got the biggest bomb, right? And so because we have that most energy, we have that power. Technological problem shifts to us. We're the new decreers of the global numerical system we call money. And so over this last 80 years or so, as America gets stronger and stronger and stronger with more and more energy backing us and bigger and bigger guns, we have more and more power to offshore our numbers to the rest of the world in exchange for their oil, in exchange for their resources, in exchange for their labor, meaning that those people want to immigrate here because they're closer to the money printer. They're closer to the people handing out free currency for no cost, right? And so... The more that energy flows to the United States, the bigger the gun gets, the stronger we become, and we ship out more numbers to the rest of the world, right? And that continues, right? The more we dilute their currency, the more we dilute their purchasing power at our direct expense, the stronger we get, the bigger our gun gets, the more we can enforce that, and the weaker they get, the less they can resist that. Historically, what does that result in? It results in one of two outcomes, right? Either outcome number one, 
is that the people that are being deluded upon lose faith in numbers, right? Lose faith in numbers. They stop accepting them. They resort to some other numerical system or some form of barter communicating economic value to each other. That's hyperinflation, right? Suddenly there's no buyers for the dollars. Where do the dollars go? Well, you know, they inflate upwards and definitely prices everywhere skyrocket as the numbers become infinitely abundant, right? Because no one wants them. So everyone dumps them on the market. That's Gresham's law, right? Now, the other option is that they don't stop accepting numbers, but instead there's war, right? Either the the victims rise up against the perpetrators or the perpetrators go after them, you know, whatever the case, that those are the only two outcomes, right? That fundamentally it's a technological flaw that is inherent with centralization and it unwinds in that sense. So I've been talking a long time. Where on earth does Bitcoin come into this? Bitcoin, the, the idea of Bitcoin was first discussed publicly in 19... Excuse me, 1899 by Nikola Tesla, Henry Ford in 1921 also mentioned it, Fuller also mentioned it, uh, Friedman, Hayek, and then obviously Finney back and others towards the later 20th century. But all those names in the 20th century, they basically predicted that as the world globalizes, as we become more industrial powers, as the world improves, and then the computer put this theory in hyperdrive, that eventually we'll find a way to have a numerical system that does not require that centralization. No longer will that numerical system be scarce at the enforcement of a central authority, thus inevitably resulting in that central authority abusing that power, selling a lie, and, and extorting others for their own gain. So that's the basic idea of Bitcoin. Finding a way to have scarce numbers in society without the need or requirement of a central authority to enforce that scarcity. And so then the second or order benefit of that is that it greatly reduces the incentive for monetary destruction. It reduces the incentive for violence. It reduces the inevitability of hyperinflation. And ultimately is a more efficient way of communicating economic value and hopefully all of us watching this are proponents of the free market. Ultimately, I would argue we're not in a free market right now because the money we're using to price everything else in is not a free market, right? You could say your house is a free market, your gold's a free market, you know, blah, 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 blah. But if you're pricing everything in the quote unquote free market in terms of a currency that itself is not a free market because it's a monopoly enforced by the barrel of a gun, are you, are, are you in a free market? I don't think so. And so what if... All the progress we've seen in the last century technologically, and this is where we get to my first thread on Twitter that blew up, my thesis being, what if all the progress we've seen in the last century, you know, 20th century and the early 21st century, is going to be dwarfed by the technological progress ahead because Bitcoin enables, for the first time, that truly free market at every layer of society, both in the goods and services we're exchanging and also the money itself that we're pricing those goods and services within. And so... I, I believe Bitcoin is that. I do not believe Bitcoin is going to be replaced. I do not believe Bitcoin can be replicated. We can get all that in a minute. But I do think the probability of Bitcoin taking over these other technological systems is very high in the same way that the internet took over media. Obviously, everyone watching this right now, it took over newspapers, it took over television, it took over radio, it took over everything, right? And I would argue that Bitcoin is the same thing with 
money. That it's going to come after political currencies. It's going to come after gold because the whole investment thesis of gold is is to hedge against that exploitation of the political currencies, real estate, stocks, on and on and on. I I believe either Bitcoin is a failed technological experiment, in which case it's going to zero, or it is a successful technological experiment, in which case it is that internet of communication, and it's going to be this black hole for everything else that is monetized in some sense. Hag there, gosh, that that was that was also good. You, you gave us a lot there. Yeah, I, yeah. Sorry, I can just keep no. going. No, but uh, it's <laughs> no, it was it's, good. It was great. I'm the same way. Ask Anthony. Like, <laughs> I'm I'm the same exact way when talking about Bitcoin. You can just go. Yeah. They, it's impossible just to have a concise one line answer to any yeah. Bitcoin question because everything you know leads to this and leads to this. Well, well, let me do that. Let me try to take that you know long explanation and try to put it in a single sentence here for you and everyone listening in the same way that for thousands of years the horse was the dominant form of transportation you know biological power moving you across land bitcoin is basically this closed thermodynamic system we call a locomotive that converts energy 10 times faster for 10 times longer for 10 times cheaper for 10 times the number of people over 10 times the distance right and if you've been in the horse world for the last 4,000 years, if I come here and I tell you that, hey, we found a way to turn lifeless iron and wood and steam into something better than your horse, you'll look at me and think I'm crazy. But go forward 100 years in the train world, and all of a sudden, people wonder why anyone ever used the horse, right? And I think it's the same thing with Bitcoin. It's very hard for us that have been conditioned to one technological paradigm, a.k.a money requiring a central authority to try to understand the second order impacts of the locomotive system money without the central authority and so it's my hope to bridge that gap and help people shift that perspective between the two mindsets like i'm so down deep the rabbit hole that i often forget things i overstate or over or over simplify or whatever so i'd love to hear your thoughts yeah, you said a lot, a lot of good stuff too, a lot to unpack. And I am fairly new. I'm I'm a class of 2021 as well, so I still consider myself a novice. Yeah, speaking of guns, you you gave the the analogy of you know having the bigger gun, things like that. I was on t- uh, Twitter X, whatever you want to call it, today, and I was listening to what sounded like a big corner talk about giving the analogy of this unstoppable train of Bitcoin. As in, you know, back in the day when wars were still being fought with bows and arrows and sticks and stones, along came gunpowder, right? Which you don't really have to, I guess the whole message behind it is that we try our best to market Bitcoin and and to teach about it, but inevitably it's unstoppable. You know, you're either going to adopt this gunpowder and not get blown away by other countries who do adopt it or you just don't accept it and you waste away. So I think Bitcoin is that it, that immovable object right now. It's, it's the gunpowder. You can either, you can stick to fiat, sticks and stones, or you can adopt Bitcoin and, you know, kind of keep up with the, with the energy, the movement. 
And I, I think with the you brought up the train overcoming the horses. I read, you know, Brian DeMint and the Bitcoin evangelist. He gives a, a really awesome analogy early on in his book. How uh, I didn't know this, but cars were pretty much vilified at first. And I think there was some like newspaper article published back in the day where it was printed that it was like a car as like a the Grim Reaper in it. Oh, it can it can run over people and kill people, right? They even created laws to where you can only drive a car maybe five miles an hour through the city or you'd be fined. So they really tried their hardest to keep it from overcoming horse and carriage. But it's the better technology. And eventually the better technology will win. And that that's definitely Bitcoin. Because we know where the car stands today. I think what I would maybe if we have time to answer this question. Even though cars won out, obviously, there's still roles to be played for horses and bikes. Obviously, they're not extinct. They still have a lane. Do you see a quote unquote lane that fiat could play even after Bitcoin takes the premier spot as the medium of exchange for energy? Yeah, that's a lot of great stuff there. I love it. I like your train of thought. I think that game theory perspective you said is really important. If we use the locomotive analogy again, if we are in, let's say the 1800s and we are a nation state and we like our horses, we have all cavalry, you know, everyone gets around horses, everything's great, right? That's what we've done for, well, since the Roman and Persian days, right? We defend our nation on horseback. We move around on horseback. That's what we do. And this other nation over there, they start wasting all this energy on this locomotive thing. Doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work. Then it works, but it's really expensive. It's really inefficient, blah, blah, blah. Then it gets better and better and better. Eventually at the point where you realize that the risk is so high to not at least try to keep up. As you were saying with the gunpowder analogy, I think that's really important for people to understand with Bitcoin. You know, most people are still viewing Bitcoin as something else to be in their portfolio. And I think that's ultimately trying to describe the locomotive in terms of horse. You know, it's like trying to say, how can we put a horse on top of rail or how can we put legs on the locomotive? It's like trying to fit things together that don't really mesh, right? Uh, it, 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 Bitcoin's not a stock in that way, right? It's not just a stock that you can afford not to have, right? If this is that paradigm shift, then really it is incredibly consequential because if you are that nation that has horses, you realize pretty quickly that if you would don't if you don't adopt this locomotive thing, then eventually that nation with the locomotive will absorb you, right? <laughs> you, like you, as brutal as it may sound, you almost don't have a choice, right? You know, you don't really have a choice if you are going to adopt the written word or not. The tribe or the nation state, city state that does adopt the written words going to be more efficient than you they're going to be faster than you they're going to learn more than you they're going to have everything else in their society upgrade 10 times faster than you and they'll take you over at some point you know you don't really have a choice to adopt gunpowder or not you don't really have a choice to adopt the internet or not you know we've seen this very clearly in ukraine like it's crazy one of the most essential commodities in the ukraine russian war these you know these couple years here has been internet bandwidth power right you know we had the whole starlink you know discussions with that it's like this thing 
that was not prominent 30 years ago suddenly is like a massive instrument for national defense. And same thing with the with the locomotive, right? It may not seem like an object of national defense when it's noisily moving around inefficiently, slower than the horse, but game three out enough, eventually it becomes incredibly significant. I think Bitcoin's the same way on the personal level as well as the nation state level, which then gets to the question of what way is that too optimistic and what way could that metaphorical horse still be around, right? You're asking about that. There are more, well, the the horse population per capita has fallen about 97%, 97, 98% uh, since the 1920s or the last 100 years. So that doesn't mean there are 97% less horses today, but per person, there are only about 3% the horses today as there were back then. So for all intents and purposes, the horse has technologically gone extinct, even if they biologically have not gone extinct, right? You don't, no one uses a horse to ride, like literally nobody uses a horse to ride anymore. You use it to hike in the mountains. You you use it in a horse show. You know I mean? Like they're, they're pets now, right? And that's great, you know, but they are not technology anymore. And so I'd say in the same way, I think political currencies, you know, again, money, technological forms of money, numerical systems that require central authority, uh, I, I do think those could exist for a long time, perhaps decades, maybe even longer than that. But I think like the horse, it will perpetually be a smaller and smaller share of monetary systems, you know? And so that's the importance for people considering to begin allocating the Bitcoin. It's not so much, oh, buy it now and sell it later for a profit. That's what a lot of people think. They think, Oh, I'm going to buy Bitcoin now, forty thousand U.S. dollars, and sell it at four hundred thousand U.S. dollars, and make all my money. It's like Bitcoin is the money, right? It's like that's like saying I'm going to get into the locomotive industry and make it big, so I can make ten times my horses. It's like okay, like that's good for now, but what happens in five or ten years when the horses are worth less, right? It's like I, I mean, at, at what point does it make sense to abandon? the superior technological paradigm for the inferior one. Right. And so to your question, like I think it's survived. I think it could survive a long time. A lot of Bitcoiners disagree with me on that, but Hey, here we are recording this on a three-way zoom call for people to listen across the internet and people still use mail. They still use money orders. You know, I mean, like people still use analog paper. A lot of times it's like internet's been around for decades. It's been the fastest adoption of any technology in history. Obviously, Bitcoin is vying for that title, but, you know, ultimately inferior technologies are still around to the internet and yeah, they'll probably exist in 10 years from now, but it'll probably be a smaller share perpetually. Right. And so I think the same thing's true with fiat currencies. Maybe they survive many decades, but I think, I, I think it's still, even if it survives many decades, not going to be the winning trade. I think that's a good for the first part, that's a really good framework and kind of a base for the need for Bitcoin, why it's significant. Again, it, to you're not going to understand Bitcoin in 30 minutes or 60 minutes or or even, you know, probably a full day. Like it, it takes a lot of time. I think Michael Saylor says like 100 hours at least of serious due diligence before you kind of even a little bit start to get the, the sense for what it is. 